0: We come to John 13 again this week, close of the chapter in verses 21 through 38, a message entitled, What Makes This Commandment New? What makes this commandment new? To overlook the gravitas of the words we've come to in the Gospel of John would be to miss the meaning of Scripture. We've come to the moment of the climax and the drama of Christ's life. I understand that we most fully observe the climax of His life on the cross. But even at this moment in Christ's life, in John 13, He has closed ranks. He is now, in the text we're in this morning, with, with, dwindling down to just 11 men. We're going to see He even calls one of the twelve here. This is the climax. This is it. This is the final words that Christ will speak in instruction to the men that He had led for three and a half years. That He had poured His life into. That He had discipled. That He had built a foundation which would be built upon, which is the church. That's where we are. We're at the climax. In just a few hours, literally after he delivered these teachings in John 13, 14, 15, 16, just a few hours after that, the Lord of glory will be hung from a tree, mocked by a nation, despised by the world, and forsaken in judgment of his Father. There's no point in history like this one, there's no moment. As powerful or as important than this moment. The moment of Christ's death. It is the one moment that makes all the difference. For those of us who are being saved. We've come to the climax. This is it. And I've come to this passage with fear and trembling. Because in this passage we find contained... A commandment which nobody in this room can fulfill in and of ourselves. It's impossible. And this is an ancient commandment. And yet Christ says, a new commandment I give to you. What makes it new? Well, I want to give you an introduction to this message the main point and two sub-points which I'll cover in this message. Make it clear. I want, if you're taking an outline, I want to make sure you get it. The main point, the one main point of this whole section of John 13 is this. We will be known as disciples of Christ because the love of Christ will be displayed from us to other believers. We will be known as disciples of Christ because the love of Christ will be displayed from us to other believers. Now, the two subpoints which we're going to get to as we unfold the outline. So, just so you have them, you can write them down as we get to them. Second, we see that like Peter, oh, excuse me. First of all, we see as a subpoint. Many people in the visible church are like Judas. They live close to the light, but darkness reigns in their heart. And then the second sub-point to the main point is that we, like Peter, often take confidence from our ability to remain faithful to Christ. But true confidence comes only through Christ's faithfulness Toward us. The main point, two sub-points, and we'll be done. It sounds simple, doesn't it? I mean, It always does at the outset. And then you have to deliver it. And you have to live it. And I come to you, a man who says freely, I fail. In this commandment, I fail. Not sometimes, but all the time, every day, I fail here. And I don't mean that in some flippant way, as if, well, it's okay. No, it's not okay. What makes this commandment new? We might also ask in this text, does the world which you live in know that you are His disciple? Well, Let's get into it. Let's let's look here at these points. Let's clarify. Let's expound what the Bible says to us. First of all, that main point, we will be known as disciples of Christ because the love of Christ will be displayed from us to other believers. I'm taking the text a little out of order, on purpose, intentionally. I think John wrote this section, verses 21 through 38, with this in mind. He's emphasizing verses 31 through 35. That's the main point of the end of John 13. The new commandment which Christ gives to us. That you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you love one another. And by this, they will know that you are my disciples. That's the point of the text. So what about Judas and Peter? He brackets, right? None of the other writers of the gospel bracket they don't even give us this statement. What's John doing? He's using two narrative stories. One on Judas, one on Peter, and in between the main point, he, these two stories emphasize the main point. They show us the point. So we want to look at the main point and then the two stories. So I'm taking a little out of out of uh, order but in context. I think to emphasize this it's best to take it a little out of order. So just follow along with my logic and hopefully it's the logic which the passage presents. In John's gospel there are three places where Jesus says there these are marks of discipleship. These these are ways that you can know and others can know that you are my disciple. Uh, those tend to be words that I latch on to. So let's look at these three instances. First of all, in John eight thirty one Jesus says to the Jews who believed him, if you hold to my teaching, you are my real disciples, or you really are my disciples. If you hold to my teaching. So out goes the postmodern church with their fanciful belief that what the Bible says doesn't really matter because it's all about what it means to me. Jesus says there is a true teaching. If you don't hold that, you're not my disciple. The first mark of a disciple is you believe the words of the master. If you don't believe the words of the master, then we can conclude you are not his disciple, regardless of what you might tell other people, what you might say, what you might try to even fool God with. I want to look at the last, this third place, and then the one we're at. The first place in John is 8.31. He says you hold on to the true teachings, the, the, the doctrines. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus emphasizes doctrine while our age de-emphasizes doctrine. How many times have you heard doctrine divides? Christ unites, doctrine divides. As if those two things are contrary to one another. Jesus would say, I unite through doctrine." Believe what I teach, and you're my disciple. If you're united over anything else, church, you're not united. That's what Jesus says. Secondly, I'd like to emphasize John 15, verse 8, which is the last mark he gives in John's gospel of a true disciple. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. John fifteen eight. That you bear much fruit. And by bearing much fruit, or by having fruit born in you, we might phrase it, prove to be my disciples. Jesus in John attacks the modern belief that truth doesn't matter. He also attacks the modern belief that you can live however you choose for whoever you choose and produce no fruit and yet still be his. He says, no, if you're my disciple, you will produce fruit because it brings glory to my father, which is the only reason I came and lived and died and was resurrected and ascended. And if you don't bear fruit, you are not my disciple. And Galatians 5 gives us fruit, right? The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long suffering. Patience even. And so we look at this fruit and what's the problem with it? What's the problem? You know, you Christians that have been here a while, you know the problem. You just can't muster it up, can you? Oh, you can love a little better today than you did yesterday. You can have more patience tomorrow than you had a week ago. But you cannot grow in these fruits steadily as a unit, lest the Spirit of God is inside of you. You can do all the works that we so exalt. You can be a great leader. You can share the gospel. You can sing worship music. You can write books. You can be a counselor. You can be a pastor. You can be a missionary. And you cannot know Jesus Christ and therefore not have the Spirit of God and therefore be damned to hell. But you cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit on your own. You can't falsify it. It just can't be done. Over a lifetime, you'll be shown As not being fruitful. And Jesus says, you're not my disciple. Now, we have a third statement, a mark. So, holding to the truth and being bearing fruit, those are marks. And this third one that I'm emphasizing, which comes second in order of John's text, is right here in front of us. John chapter 13. Verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A mark of discipleship is that you love the saints. One of my pet peeves, maybe it's not yours, but it's mine, is to hear anybody Wax eloquent about how they love Jesus and hate His church. That's an impossibility. There is no Christianity outside of the organized church. You cannot love Christ and hate His church. If you love Him, you love one another. This is how the world knows you. That's why when I read reports from a resurgence among Southern Baptists called the Great Commission Resurgence, and I hear that 95% of the messengers approved resoundingly a measure calling the church to return to its biblical roots in specific areas, not just some broad stroke, Specific areas. That's why I get energized. Because I love the church. I want Southern Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and non-affiliated churches. And Episcopal churches. And churches, whatever they may be of whatever stripe or color, I want them to rise up and be the children of God. The church militant. Across the globe. That's what I want. I love the church. Not just Grace Fellowship. I love you. But I love the church. It's a mark. If you don't have it, you have serious, serious problems. You really must take an evaluation of your life. Because Jesus says it's a mark. That you love one another. The church the disciples. He does not say you must love the world in this text, though in other texts He says you must love your enemy also. But don't dilute this down to just loving people. He's very specific that you love one another. Very specific. So let's look at it. First of all, we see under this main point that because Jesus is committed to glorifying God the Father, the Father will glorify Him. So we back away from His commandment to look at the context In verses 31 through 33, what does Jesus say? He focuses on the glory of God. This brings us to the love which we must have. The glory of God does. When your life is focused for the glory of God, you will love one another. Is what Jesus seems to be saying. I love the Father. I glorify Him. He loves me. He glorifies me. I'm going to be glorified. Now, I'm giving you this command to love one another. He's not shifting gears as if these two things aren't related. Because in Deuteronomy 6, 5, what does the Bible say? But, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Glorify the Father, Jesus says. That's what I'm about to do. I'm about to glorify the Father. And He's about to glorify me. He says this. Clearly speaking about his death, burial, and resurrection. How will he be glorified? He's going to die on a cross, a shameful death. He's going to be buried for three days. And he's going to resurrect and ascend after 40 days to the right hand of the Father. That's how he'll be glorified. And we see it in the text. His very words draw us to that present tense. The Son of Man is glorified. That's present. Right now I'm glorified. Interesting in context, this is after he dismisses Judas. He doesn't say this in front of Judas. We'll get to that in just a moment. Jesus saves his most intimate teaching for those who truly believe. Now I'm about to be glorified, men. The betrayer is gone. Let me speak frankly. Now I'm going to die, is what he's saying, and be buried and be resurrected and ascend. God is about to glorify me. And God is glorified in Him. The aim of Christ on the cross was to bring glory to His Father. It is a God-centered theology through and through. The cross is a God-centered act through and through. We are a byproduct of His love for His Father. That doesn't make us unimportant. We're eternally important. He died for us. But at the heart of the act on the cross is God's glory. That's the heart of it. And the spillover of that is we get saved through His grace and mercy. That's the spillover effect. Jesus' obedience in glory to the Father is the main focus. So we see, I'm about to be glorified through dying, being buried, resurrected, ascending. And that's going to glorify God. The Father, and then he steps down that's that's present tense, then he steps down, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. future tense. Why switch in tenses? This is about to be had now those things those glories how he's going to continue to glorify him is not only it's from the cross, beginning at the cross. Through eternity, at His name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. At the right time, God will highly exalt Him. In other words, the glory which He got that day at the cross continues today and forever. And so we see this emphasis on the glory of God right before He speaks about the commandment to love one another. The conditional statement is guaranteed fulfillment because it's based on the character of God. You notice the conditional, I hope. I hope when you're reading, you're reading with an open and active mind. If God is glorified in Him, it's a conditional statement. If. Does that mean it's in question? Maybe God will be glorified. Maybe He won't be glorified. That's not at all what this conditional phrase is about. Look at the phrase that's just before it. The Son of Man will be glorified. And God is glorified in him. It's guaranteed. It's stated, Jesus says. Now, if God is glorified, it's a different category altogether, isn't it? He's not saying possibly God will be glorified. He's already promised he will be glorified. What is he doing? With a conditional statement, he's emphasizing God being glorified. Look what he does. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And glorify Christ at once. In other words, the conditional is to emphasize that God the Father is the focus. He's going to be glorified. And the Son will be glorified with Him. It's not in doubt. It's guaranteed. Why? Because it is based on the eternal character of God. There is no doubt Jesus will be glorified because He will die on the cross. Nothing could have stopped it. It's foolishness to say, what if Jesus had not died? He had to die. When we reason why, it's because God had planned from before the foundation of the world to glorify His Son and Himself in this way, that He would show His love specifically through Jesus Christ on the cross. And now we get into the commandment to love, connected with this idea of glory. Jesus assures the disciples that he will walk the path of sacrifice alone. He steps down here into verse uh, 33 saying, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. He speaks with this most affectionate term. Technon. It's the word a father would use to his children. Little children. It's love. It's affection. He's not saying they're like the Jewish leaders who he also told, you can't follow me. That was for a whole other reason. They couldn't follow Christ because they were not in faith. He's not saying that to these men, his 11. He's saying, you're my children. Let me tell you. I'm about to do something that I must do all alone. You cannot go. At this moment, Jesus reveals that He has no illusion that anybody will die with Him. He'll die alone. Forsaken by these eleven men and even forsaken on the cross by His Father. No one could go behind the veil of sorrow which Christ had to go behind. No one. John, the writer of this, uh, this gospel... Standing at the foot of the cross, weeping tears, holding the mother of Christ, could not go where he went. He went all alone. You can't follow me where I'm going. You can't go there. Where did he go? Where did he go? On the cross, he stepped behind the veil of the holy of holies of heaven. And on the cross, he sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat of the covenant. He is the high priest, he and he alone. No one went with him because it was his duty. It was his joy. And he bore God's wrath for the joy which was set before him, that God would be glorified and that many would be ransomed. What a Savior. What a loving, glorious Savior. No one could suffer because He was the High Priest of Heaven. He was the Lamb of God. He was the only satisfactory sacrifice. If you're waiting on another, there is none. If you're here today testing out Christianity thinking maybe Christ is or isn't. Let me assure you of this. He is the way to heaven. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the sacrifice. There is no other. Everyone who came before him pointed to him and everyone after him points back over the shoulder to him. If he is a true prophet of God, anyone who points to another source is a liar and a deceiver whether he be proclaimed as a great man or great prophet or not, he is not. He is the only one. I'm going somewhere that you cannot go, and it's not just to the cross. It's into the holy holies. It's into the sprinkle of the blood. It's into ratify the covenant. Jesus gives the old commandment in a new way. Now we get to the commandment. Deuteronomy six five: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the precursor. That's the build-up, the glory of God. You've got to love God more than anything. With all of your being, you love God. Then Leviticus 19, 18 is true, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, an old covenant promise in the Torah. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. When I when I came to this point studying this text, I must admit it was confounding. Because this is not the first time that has been said, love one another. So how is this commandment new, becomes a question. If it was in the Torah, how is it that Jesus is saying it's a new commandment? The Torah the oldest books of the Bible. Well, Jesus makes some significant revelations in his exposition of these commandments. That's where I want us to focus for a moment. What is it that makes it new? He gives a new foundation or he reveals the true foundation of the Levitical promise, its application, and its purpose. Okay? This is how it's new. The foundation of this commandment to love one another is now and truly always has been because I loved you. You see, you can read Leviticus 19. If you're not careful, you can read it as a to-do list. Do this. When you glean in your fields, don't take all the stare. Leave it for the gleaners. Don't pick over it a second time because the poor among you need something to eat. Love your neighbor. Don't take vengeance on him. Don't bear grudge against him. Your neighbor, the Jewish neighbor who lives next to you. Your next of kin. Love him. I am the Lord. You get this feeling of a... To-do list, if you turned in the New American Standard to Leviticus 19, you would see they even break it out like bullet points. It looks like a to-do list. A lot of Christians read it that way. That was never the foundation of the commandment. Not a to-do list. Rather, a revelation. Love your neighbor because I have already loved you. It is assumed that true disciples love one another. Why? Because they have been loved by God. Therefore, they can't help but love their brother and sister. The foundation is God Himself. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Verse 34 Love one another just as I have loved you. The foundation is Christ and His love for us. The application is to all disciples, not only to the Jews. Love one another. Expands from Leviticus. In Leviticus, it clearly says the Jew among you, love him. It doesn't say anything about the Canaanites. It says nothing about those Jebusites, Moabites, the Jew, love him. Jesus says, forget nationality. Love everybody who loves me. Why is that so important? Why is that revolutionary? Well, I'm not sure the apostles understood it here because it's re-explained over and over again in the letters of Paul to the churches and in Acts, over and over, that they had to love everybody, not just their Jewish brothers. But it's very significant for us because in these moments leading up to his death, he not only thought about Israel, he thought about the Gentiles. I'm giving you a new commandment. It's founded on my love for you. Love every disciple, not just the Jews. Your neighbor now is not only your next of kin, your Jewish national neighbor. Your neighbor is anyone who loves me. And that is relevant for us because as we look around the congregation It should be quite a shuddering fact that most of us in here are of the same race. I don't say that in judgment. This is the fact. I didn't need to tell you that. The most segregated institution on the face of the earth is the church of Jesus Christ. No more segregated anywhere in the world than in the south. Is it any wonder that the world around us says, They just talk a good talk. They don't love one another. They love people like them, but a lot like the Jews, they hate everybody that's not like them. Naturally, should flow out of the heart of every Christian, black, white, yellow, red, and all shades in between, a love across national ethnic boundaries. Jesus says love one another. He doesn't put a definition on it, as to say it's contained in the Jewish race, contained Gentiles loving Gentiles. It's every believer. You can muster up, and may not have to try real hard loving people like you. But how? When's the last time you actively loved somebody that was unlike you because of Christ? Not because of what they could offer you, but because of who they are in Him. They're your brother. They're your sister. Naturally, as Christians live their life, they should be covered up with shades and tongues and tribes and ethnic groups not like them. When it doesn't happen, the world then mocks Christianity, laughs at it, and despises the gospel. Jesus expands the application of the text in Leviticus. He gave the true foundation again. And now, what is the purpose? Primarily to glorify God. That's why he tied it to the glory of God. You need to love one another the way I've loved you. And in my love for you, I glorified the Father. Now, you glorify the Father by loving one another. That's the reasoning in the text, as John writes. Not flesh and blood, in verse 35. You can't do this, you can't accomplish this, verse 35. Through flesh and blood. This is done through agape love. 1 Corinthians 13 says is defined this way. And I love what James Montgomery Boyce did. In his statements on love, he read this passage and inserted the name of Jesus Christ where we see uh, love. He wrote the text this way. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on His own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus is not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus never ends. He also said, now that you're a believer in Christ, you can insert you there. You. And think about this. Is this how the world would define you as a believer? You are patient and kind. You love. Your love is displayed in not envying or boasting. You're not arrogant. You're not rude. You do not insist on your own way. You are not irritable or resentful. You do not rejoice at wrongdoing, but you rejoice with the truth. you bear all things, you believe all things, you hope all things, you endure all things. You will endure forever. That's the definition of love that I'm talking about, not a romantic, emotional love, but rather a godlike love, because he's loved you. Now you love one another this way. In your marriage, it practically applies. You don't get to pick or choose how you love your wife or your husband. Men, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Bearing all things. Believing all things. Enduring all things. Being patient and kind towards her. Respectful and honoring. Not envying her or boasting about her. You should be Common among us, this love, if we are really his disciples. That's what's new about this commandment. Not the commandment itself, but rather how it is applied across all boundaries. Christ's love reaches to all men who love him. Therefore, all men who love him love their brothers and sisters just as he loved them. Many people in the visible church, and these points are very simple and straightforward as we close. Many people in the visible church are like Judas. They live close to the light, but their darkness is reigning in their heart. Now that we know what the point of the passage is, the examples are given. First of all, Judas does not love this way. He is not a disciple. As we look at the first verse... It says that Jesus, knowing he was troubled in his spirit, knowing that one of them would betray him. Now let me set the scene because we've all got the famous painting of the Last Supper in our minds where they sit in these chairs upright backs, you know, like Romans. That's nothing like what the supper was. We know for a fact that when they had a banquet, they sat on cushions on the floor. They reclined at the table. His cushions were shaped in a U. The head of the table was the center of the U. To his right was the second most important guest. In this instance, John. Because, how do I know? Because I believe John is the disciple who loved Christ and was beloved by Christ. He's mentioned that way three times. He doesn't name himself. But I believe this is true. And his head was against his breast. They're on their left elbow, feet behind them. Eating, his head was against Christ's breasts. The most honored guest at the feast reclined at his left, the head man's left. Who was it that took this seat of honor? Well, it's not Peter. Because Peter has to ask John to ask Jesus who's going to betray him. Check him off the list. The only other person in the commentary mentioned by name is who? Judas. Oh, yeah, you got it. Jesus, walking in that night as they debated about who would sit at his left and right in the kingdom, turned to Judas, I believe, in their presence and said, Judas, sit at my left hand. The ultimate act of respect and love to the one who would throw him away like a slave for 30 pieces of silver in a short few hours. Judas at his left. I infer that because they have a conversation as recorded by the other gospel writers which no one else obviously hears. He had to have been close enough that Jesus could turn and say what he said and nobody else gets it. He couldn't have had to shout it to the other end of the table. Judas is at his left. John at his right. And Judas is filled with darkness. Do not sit under the preaching of God's Word, believing you're safe because you're here. Judas sat under the teacher of all teachers, the Son of Man, the glorious Lord and Savior, for three and a half years hearing these teachings and was filled with darkness. Your presence in this place does not guarantee your presence in the kingdom. Many in the church today are like Judas. They get close to the teachings. They can profess the teachings with their mouth. They can put on the good acts. So we're all confused and filled with love and respect for them as great Christians. And when they die, they're going to face a judge, not a father. Don't be like that. I think directly about Matthew 13, the wheat and the tares. A good master sowed good seed, and while he was sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed seeds among the wheat, the tares. None of those tares inherit the kingdom of God. So when I say that, I'm not saying find out if you're a tare and then become a wheat. I'm saying that to the church. Many among us are tares. They are not true believers. They will not be saved. They will die and be judged by God. Well, that's not evangelical. It's true. Because the disciples said, what should we do? Should we go and pluck out the tares? And he said, no, lest you pull out the wheat with the tares. Let them both grow until the harvest. Then my judgment angels will come and separate the two and burn the tares and gather the wheat into my barns. That's what's happening in Judas' life. That's what's unfortunately going to happen to many in here. Church, don't be shocked when many go out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. But they were not. These things happen so it might be clearly known who is the elect and who is not. That's why Judas is being exposed in the presence of all of his brothers. God, Jesus leaves no, zero chance that you miss it. He even told a parable about it. Judas did not love Christ He did not love his brothers. We look at this and we see this dipping of the morsel, which was again an act of honor and respect, the giving. And then Jesus turns to him and says, whatever you're going to do or what you're about to do, you do it quickly. And Judas leaves and then we get the commandment. Now, I said that was the first picture. Some of us in here fit that picture. Darkness and light. You notice that last comment in verse 30? And it was night. John is drawing attention to the darkness of Judas. It's not a time indicator. Not a time indicator. It's an indicator of his spiritual condition. John often emphasized the light in John 1, verses 6 through 9. John the Baptist was the little light. Casting light to the big light, which was coming into the world. John 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John 11, beginning in verse 9, he says, walk while there is yet light. For if you walk in the light, you will not stumble. But he who walks in the dark, stumbles. And here he says, Judas was in the dark. He was close to the light. He was even at the door of the kingdom of God and would not come in. He left. In the utter darkness, he despaired of his sin. At the end of his life, he despaired of his sin, but he would not repent. Filled with Satan, he was driven to the task which God had set before him for him. He betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Realizing he had betrayed the Lord of glory, he returned to the temple. Take back the bribe. Take back the payment. Their famous words, it's too late. What you have done, you have done. He throws down what he traded in for Jesus. It looks like he's going to repent. The Bible says he was deeply sorrowful. And he went out on the hill and hung himself. Why? Why? A new commandment I give to you. As I've loved you, love one another, and then they'll know that you're my disciple. He didn't have the love of Christ in him. He had no way home. He was in despair and sorrow, but not repentance. That's the first picture to emphasize the commandment. The second picture is Peter. Now, before you start looking down your nose at Judas, what Peter did is, all, is it's synonymous, really. He didn't take money. But he denied Christ. Openly, in public, denounced Jesus. Cursed the name of God in the courtyard. Before the crock crowed. Just as Jesus had predicted. He predicted. Jesus did. Judas's betrayal. He predicted Peter's fall. Peter had confidence in his abilities at this point, not Christ's. Is shown. Look what he says. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards, Simon. You can't do it now. You, you don't have the ability. Lord, where are you going? He wanted to follow, but you can't follow. And look what he says. Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you, his own ability. I can do it. Utter confidence in his flesh. Boasting in himself. I'll follow you to the death. Jesus says, You'll lay down your life for me. I tell you before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Not only will you not die for me, Peter, to, to burst your bubble really good, you won't even stand up and say you know who I am. Judas and Peter look like the same two people, don't they? From the outside looking in, you got a man who bought, was bought by silver and a man who didn't even get offered money. He just sold Jesus out for nothing. Not even a bowl of parge like Esau. Peter was despicable. Because he was a coward, he wouldn't stand up. No bribe had to be offered. He simply walked away. Loving himself more than he loved Christ. Having confidence in his flesh, now he's fallen and he despairs. Oh, he despairs. Where did he go? Matthew tells us he went and cried all night. Sounds like Judas so far, right? But it's not Judas. Because at the end of John, we get the beautiful restoration. And how did Jesus restore this disciple? On what basis did he restore him? What command did he give him? What question did he ask? Not Peter, are you willing to die for me? You remember I told you the emphasis of the passage is this commandment about love. Peter, are you going to die for me? Is that the question? No. What is the question, Peter? do you love me? And what is the command? Love my sheep. This is how you will know and the world will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. How do we know Peter and Judas are not the same? Judas died in despair having hung himself in guilt. Peter was restored in love to love one another. Where are you? That's the question I would have. Where are you? As we close this, it's worthless to know about Peter and Judas. you got to know about where you are. Are you characterized as a person who loves Christ, with all of your heart and soul and mind, and loves one another as yourself. This is how you know you are his disciple. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in your word, we humble.